0: A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com.
1: Hey there, Angry Planet listeners. Matthew here. I want to take a moment to address some uh, concerns that listeners sent me after the last episode. We had on Joseph Epstein, and as many of you pointed out, he said some things that aren't true. Uh, One of them I'm going to address directly here is the Robert Malley situation. Malley was the U.S. special envoy to Iran. Epstein made some claims about Malley uh, and his team that are not true. It's a complicated situation that involves the State Department, the Tehran Times, and an ongoing investigation. Basically, it's the kind of thing that needs its own episode. Uh, I'll include some links in the show notes to kind of give you all a primer. Uh, Some of the other stuff Epstein talked about, we address in a show that you're about to hear and Uh, in another episode that I've already recorded about the nature of propaganda during a live conflict. Uh, I wanted to thank everyone that reached out. You were, by and large, very polite. Our listeners are wonderful, and I can tell that we've cultivated an audience of people who come to us because you love nuance, just like we do. you noticed later in this episode that Jason cued me up to deliver this speech that I'm giving you right now, uh, and I waffled. Uh, I left that moment in because we thought it was funny. Uh, and the rest of the episode gets quite grim and scary. So without further ado, here is that episode, uh, a conversation with Joey Ayub. I was re-listening to the other episode that you were on this morning while I was making breakfast, just to like make sure I was absolutely refreshed. And it was uh, a story Jason mm-hmm. told towards the end about um, uh, an old Holocaust survivor living on uh, the border with Gaza and going into the shelter and deciding that they were not coming out anymore. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I remember that. Um, Joey, thank you so much for coming on to angry planet again. Uh, I want to put, cause this is the third episode we've recorded. This will be the third episode we've recorded since the last time we were on air, but I think it's probably going to be the first one we air. I imagine, um, Jason, maybe we'll decide something different, but, uh, it is the 23rd of October. Uh, it is a little after noon. Um, big news this morning is uh, Erdogan has decided to let Sweden into NATO, uh, and also I believe Al Jazeera is reporting that fifty of the hostages with dual citizenship passports are going to be released. Um, to just kind of put things in a, in, a, in a specific time before we start talking. Um, obviously we're talking Israel Hamas again today. Uh, Joey, uh, the. F- We've had you on the show before. Uh, I thought of you immediately um, when things, when the the attack on October 7th happened and you were thinking of us because you, you also reached out almost immediately and said, Hey, I want to come on the show again. And I was wondering why you thought of us and like what your, what was your headspace that you were in um, in that immediate moment and like what you needed to communicate and get out.
2: Right. Yeah. Well, Matthew and Jason, thanks again for having me. Unfortunately, it's under these circumstances. Um, yeah, I contacted you guys immediately, um as well as uh buddies of mine at uh, the Ukraine Without Hype podcast, Um which I mean, obviously, from the title, they tend to focus on Ukraine, but they also have this so more like internationalist lens. And I knew that they were interested in this topic because me and Romeo, one of the hosts talk about this a lot. And so they had, they had me on and shortly before they had me on, I also thought of you guys because I, I felt like last, the last chat we had was, you know, pretty productive. Um, for lack of a better, I don't even know if these terms make any sense in the context, you know, given the topic of conversation, but like, it was an engaging conversation and I'm hoping listeners thought the same. And in times like these, um, uh, I have like two hats on. One is the hat of me freaking out because I have obviously family both in Israel, Palestine and in, in Lebanon. Uh, as a Lebanese Palestinian, that tends to happen. Um, and the other hat is, uh, trying to put this analytical one on, which is kind of like a coping mechanism in, in some sense as well. Um, so yeah, that's why I'm here. And hopefully the uh, listeners will, will find this, uh, you know, useful as well.
0: It's funny actually. I what I think is going to be good about this conversation is that I'm in the exact same situation except on the Jewish side. That's uh-huh. all. I mean, family directly affected in Israel um and uh you know, trying to also be a journalist. Um, you know, and and analyze things fairly and um we actually on that line we have a correction to make from our last conversation, then I think we should just uh, get it out there immediately. Cause I think it is mm-hmm. actually probably the most important thing in our conversation today is to be as factual as humanly possible. So mm-hmm. Matthew, mm-hmm. you want
1: to hit it with the correct, uh, you know, I don't have all the notes in front of me. You're, you're kind of putting me on the spot. I thought we were, I, uh, I am. so if you're <laughs> I hearing am. me, if you're <laughs> hearing me uh, meander right now, and you will be in the edit afterwards, my plan was, <laughs> I was going to write a little something and say it right before, uh, the episode begins is kind of like an intro, uh, but the the short version is that um, we had a gentleman on in the last episode that said some things that were not correct, specifically about uh, uh, U.S. diplomats diplomats and their ties to Iran. Um, so, I uh, if you're hearing me, if I, I was much more articulate before the episode started <laughs> about this <laughs> in the lovely all. intro bit that I wrote. Uh, that you've already heard if you're listening to this podcast, uh, and I will put mm-hmm. this as a placeholder so you can see how the sausage is made. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, I have, I've got like the document that has everything in it. I just wanted to be super specific, um, so that's my plan. Jason, <laughs> is I will record a little something Perfect. after Perfect. we get out of here. But yeah, thank you for that. Uh, we did get. A, I do also want to say real quick that we got a lot of notes from listeners. Um, after that one, uh, after that episode, uh, everyone was really polite and said like, hey, I think you should check a couple of things out that were in that episode that didn't sound quite right. Um, but everyone who came and like sent me messages directly was like very nice uh, and said that they appreciate what we do. Uh, um, and I think like on this topic, people can like, understandably, there's emotions are running high. Um, and I just really appreciate mm-hmm. the listeners being kind when they reach out, uh, especially yeah, bless
2: bless them for doing
1: that. Yeah. Especially when they have <laughs> corrections or they think that we did something wrong. Like, cause I yeah. like constructive criticism. I like to be told when I'm wrong, but nobody likes to get yelled at. So everyone, all the listeners who reached out were very nice. Uh, and I appreciate that. Thank you. All right. Let's, let's get into this. Um, Joey first, actually, can you give us a little bit of your background? Uh, uh your your academic background like who you're working for right now and where you're writing that kind of thing
2: of course yeah um okay so i'm in i'm in between jobs as they say you know meaning i'm uh, soon to be unemployed um but i work as a um, freelancer most of the time i recently finished a phd in cultural analysis uh focusing on lebanon and specifically post-war lebanon um themes related to memory to conflict to whether the past is really the past or that sort of thing um which was really cathartic uh despite the um, honestly like 90 percent of the topic is pretty traumatic and pretty pretty depressing um before that i did my masters at soas um on the politics of yiddish and hebrew uh as a on the cultural studies they call it in english and kulturanalyse in german um, cause I did my PhD in, in Switzerland, I should say. Um, and so during that year at SOAS in, in London. So that was 2015, 2016 is when I, let's say, delved, um, to, to pretty deep extent. I'm, I, I go, I got pretty obsessed with the history of Yiddish, especially. Um, and to a lesser extent, but still noteworthy, I think the, the history of Hebrew, cause obviously they are linked. Um, and that allowed me, I think, a, a way of understanding quote unquote the other side. Um, I don't like sides. I, that's not how I, I'm using terms that folks, I think listening, um, at least can follow me a bit better because otherwise my thoughts are very chaotic or they sound so then they're, they're not chaotic in my head. Um, and that, that's what I think allowed me to have this again for lack of a better term like nuanced perspective on uh what has been happening in israel palestine for basically my entire life and the entire life of my parents and the entire life of my grandparents more or less um and so i i am lebanese like that's my nationality i am also of palestinian heritage my grandfather was exiled in 48 uh, from the city of Haifa, which is obviously now part of the state of israel um and I've always had this relationship with that entire part of the world, for lack of a better term, as someone who grew up in Lebanon, but surrounded by two states, the state of Israel and the state of Syria, that uh, were not exactly easy, or not easy, easy neighbors, to put it very mildly. Um, and Lebanon's kind of sandwiched between the two. And so... I don't know. I feel like this is a perspective that uh, took me some time to even appreciate, like a positionality that is actually worth discussing and talking about and all of that stuff. Not that it's all about identity politics or any of that. It's just a way of informing or at least it kind of gives a different layer, or an added layer to what could otherwise be very complicated and almost in in undecipherable is that the word. Um um topic which is the topic of israel palestine oh and i have a podcast because i need to plug shit <laughs> Five these times talk stuff politics check it out it's good it's a good show Sorry, go for yes. it <laughs> thank, you. Oh, thank you and more
0: importantly you actually just had a child we don't know if is it your first child or it a- is it
2: is my first child she's a preemie uh, meaning she's extremely premature and is extremely tiny uh, so that that's kind of also a bit scary, but she's doing well. And the hospital, we live like not far from the hospital and they have been brilliant. So at least I'm grateful for that.
1: Congratulations, Thank, yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thank um, you. So you mentioned identity politics in there. And I think that there, we have this, uh, that is a lens through which I think a lot of Americans are viewing this. Um, and I wanted to bring up something that I think is a complicating factor here. We talked about this a little bit the last time you were on, um a lot of the Jews in Israel are not European of European extraction. They are people that came from the region and moved to Israel because it is not as if um if you were Jewish in Iraq you were having a great time, right?
2: No, you were not.
1: Uh so can you tell us a little bit about uh, the Arab Jewish population uh, and how that kind of complicates western narratives about this war? sure uh, and of course I, w- I would like to also
2: focus more on the Palestinian side at some point just because of because of that Western narrative for that matter but yes yeah, so the Mizrahim po- the Mizrahim population Mizrah just means east Um so it was the term in and of itself didn't really exist before the 40s or it did not exist before the 40s before that you you know you were a I don't know a Baghdadi Jew or a you know you you were from a certain place and you had a certain ethnicity and also a certain religion and the relationships between ethnicity and religion and nationality is one of the most difficult ones to even get into. And to be honest with you, although like I, I have read my Benedict Anderson and my Ella Shohat and all of that stuff, it's still very complicated. Um, the way certain categories are formed, um, like even what is, for example, an Arab Jew today compared to... Uh, I don't know. 70 years ago, obviously, there was much more a sense that this was even a poss- possibility. And although today, of course, many people still identify as such, it's clearly more difficult to do so. In large part, uh, due to the, the formation of the nation states that, you know, for various reasons, had to quote-unquote homogenize the populations and create a, a us versus them and that sort of thing. Um, so the Mizrahim today are like uh, the majority of the Israeli Jewish population. At the very least, like close to the majority. I don't have the statistics in front of me. Um, and that's a kind of in contrast to the Ashkenazim population, which were the, um, where a lot of the founders or most, most all of the founders of the state of Israel were from. Um, I don't quite know the etymology. I don't remember. I think it like Ashkenazim has something to do with like the Germanic origins, basically like Europe, Eastern Europe, obviously, uh, where a lot of uh, the Jewish population was from obviously before the Holocaust, uh, most of them before the Holocaust. And so um, the complication here is that, uh, especially if we talk about America-Israel, is that most American Jews are Ashkenazim, most Israeli Jews are Mizrahim, uh, or Sephardic to to extent as well, Sephardim. And this kind of creates a bit of a, uh, for lack of a better expression here, like a lost translation of how certain forms of identity politics within the U.S. then get, Mistranslated, rather than translated, or a lot of any, in any case, a lot of what's actually happening on the ground, or the nuance and the complexities, the relationship between someone who's Ashkenazi versus, and Mizrahi and Sephardic and Ethiopian and Yemeni and all of that stuff, let alone, obviously, a Palestinian citizen of Israel, a Bedouin and Druze and so on. Those are things that don't quite fit as neatly in, um, U.S. style identity politics. It's not to say that it's not identity politics. It's, it's a version of that. It's just an Israeli version of that. And it requires like a different type of understanding. I'm by no means an expert on that, but from what I have read, and as I said, I was quite obsessed for like a year or two. Um, it's 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 a different type of, of, of power relations, a different type of dynamic. It's not quite just about race in the sense of the color of one's skin, for example, or colorism, we might say. It's a bit more complicated than that,
0: basically. So how does... The Palestinian population of Israel fit in? And uh and I mean the actual citizens, uh Arab citizens or Palestinian citizens of Israel. Um are they accepted in Israel? And how are what do people outside of Israel, particularly Arabs, think about that population? Mm. Well, a complicated one, of course, but what
2: I can say to not also lose myself in my own train of thought is that uh, there is a bit of a, well, not now, clearly, and not last year either, and not two years ago, but before that, there was a bit of a tokenization of like the, not, not quite a modern minority kind of thing, because it doesn't really apply in the same way as you have, for example, with Asian Americans in the US, which is like a specific, sorry, specific sociological formation. But the Palestinian citizens of Israel, uh, many of whom would call themselves Arab Israelis, many of whom, and I don't have the statistics most, or I don't know what the majority is, would say Palestinian citizens of Israel, and others would actually say, uh, in Arabic, so like Palestinians from the inside, i.e. the inside the borders of 48. And so that's a way of like, you're placing yourself within the land, but you don't recognize the state you're under, basically. And so that that obviously creates... um, Complication. It just makes it a bit more complicated. Let's put it, let's put it that way. Because there are relationships between, let's say, a, a Palestinian from Haifa, who I may be related to through my grandfather, let's say, but who's a citizen of the state of Israel. And obviously I'm not. Um, and a relationship between that person and someone from Gaza, from Gaza, or someone from, I don't know, Bethlehem, Bethlehem, or, or Ramallah. And that, and that's a different type of relationship because a, it's in Arabic for the most part, so you have a different vocabulary. There are different things that um, uh, does separate them, and sometimes it it can make uh, things uncomfortable. Not always, of course, uh, but it's just one of those things that because at times there's a bit of a difficulty. I think in the in the wider Arab world of making space for Palestinian citizens of Israel, who whose relationship to the state is, to put it mildly complicated very complicated uh with various degrees of like some believe that change comes from within and so they participate in the electoral system and they can vote for the you know the arab joint list or the the, le- the leftist coalitions and all of the, all those groups but you have also others that are like on the islamist side and so they vote for an islamic party within israel that's actually kind of on the far right side of things and so they th- that party allies with the far right uh uh, religious Zionist uh, uh, coalition or party. I don't quite know the, 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 titles in English. Um, and they are Palestinians, but they also see themselves as separate. And so you have all of those different, you know, nuances to, to that specific population, which are roughly, I think, 20% of the Israeli uh, citizenry. Um, as for the relationship with the, the rest of the Arab world, it's also very complicated. It depends where, uh, some countries, the countries that have recognized the state of Israel, like let's say Egypt or Jordan, uh, if you're a Palestinian citizen of Israel, uh, going there, you're going there as like on your Israeli passport, for example. And so that makes for an interesting conversation, but you can enter. So like it's not necessarily dangerous or anything like that. Um, as for uh, other states, most Arab states as of now have not recognized. And so and more recently, same for like UAE, Bahrain, all of those states that have established relations with the state of Israel, but like from Lebanon, obviously in my case, I have met, for example, Palestinian citizens of Israel in Lebanon, but this only happens because they would have connections to the West Bank or to Jordan, and so they are able to get either a special paper or maybe they they have access to the Jordanian nationality. In which case, they they enter Lebanon on the Jordanian nationality. Or of 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 course, if they are dual citizen like American or whatnot, then they enter Lebanon on on the you know, American passport or whatnot. And so the the there have been uh. And this is more on the cultural scene, right? You will have f- people who are, uh, Palestinian citizens of Israel who are like, I don't know, from, from, um, know, Nazareth or, or Haifa or Yaffa or, or whatnot, who would appear on those uh, pan-Arab uh, musical shows like The Voice or what have you. And they would be there as Palestinians and they would be c- talked to as Palestinians. They would be, they would be representing Palestine with the Palestinian flag and so on and so forth. And so those folks for the most part have like, I'm going to, say, 10 different layers um, of, of identities that they navigate, also depending on who they're talking to. Like probably if you're a Palestinian citizen of Israel and you're talking to an Israeli Jew, probably you're not going to say you are from the dachil, you're from the inside, because you probably would be speaking in Hebrew, for example, and the translation doesn't really work in the same way. And so they end up having these, um, as with all identities, you have multiple sides of those identities and multiple identities, you might say that they have to navigate um, as best as they could. And that changes, again, if they are then migrants to, I don't know, like you're a Palestinian citizen of Israel and you migrate to the U S are you there as an Israeli or are you there as a Palestinian? And so many, many of them end up having to negotiate those identities um, depending on their own views, obviously, and how they feel about the, where they come from and where they belong and all of that.
1: Can I ask a series of uh, deeply ignorant questions? Sure <laughs> um so can we can you explain the relationship of Hamas to the Palestinian people? uh a thing I keep hearing over and over again lately is that the, you know they were elected in two thousand and six uh et cetera et cetera uh they're you know they're part of a representative government. That's not exactly true right what like how did Hamas come to power? how have they stayed in power and what kind of rulers okay are there? yeah. Well, they're not good. good. <laughs> um,
2: I would, so I would reference, um, Tarek Bakoni, Bakoni, uh, who has a book called Hamas Contained. He was a guest on, on the Friday Times. He recently was interviewed, I believe, on the New Yorker. Um, as far as I can tell, he's really the best or one of the best people who, who has researched this specific question of what is Hamas? how does it even function how does it see itself what's its relationship to the palestinian people and also like what's the relationship between Palestinian people in gaza versus the west bank versus citizens of israel because those are not of course the same priorities the same thing if you're in the west bank maybe you're not necessarily but if you might be more like sociologically aligned or socially aligned sorry with the pa if not politically necessarily you may not like them but it's like well i know those guys they're sort of my people it's like my uncle is in it or you know whatever and whereas, you know, if you're from Gaza, Hamas is a more immediate um, reality and you deal with them as you would deal maybe, maybe through bureaucracy, like, oh, I need to go to the government today to get my papers done on something or whatnot. And so technically you're going to Hamas, but as far as you're concerned, you're you're just going to the government. Those are like state institutions or proto-state institution because they're not, and those are boring academic uh, separations, but they're not as well-formed quote-unquote and part of why they're not well-formed is that obviously the state of gaza itself as a state of not the state as a nation state but as a space is not exactly conducive to like quote-unquote a normal state and so the relation between hamas and and the wider i'm not gonna say the people because that's like a more complicated one but like let's say to the cause let's say like what is what is hamas vis-a-vis uh the palestinian cause of seeking uh uh, justice, ending the occupation, ending the blockade, all of that stuff. What, what is Hamas and all of this? And Hamas, like up until 2006 were relatively small players. Six, seven, I don't remember what the elections were, six or seven. And they did win those elections. Those were, uh, like normal elections in that sense. And shortly after that is when the, the power grab happened because you had a, what is effectively a civil war between Hamas and DPA or Fatah and Hamas, you might say. Um, Partly backed, or at least this is where Tariq would be a better source than me, but my understanding is that, um, the PA and obviously Fatah were, were backed by the, the U.S. and the Israelis and Hamas at the time were backed. I'm going to say Iran probably, but I'm not entirely sure. And Hamas won that civil war. And that's how after that they, uh, managed to stay in power despite being initially democratically elected. But then the conditions that led to the civil war and then what follow what, um, uh, Followed after the civil war, basically. Obviously, Mandan, this was no longer really a democratic institution. Now, whether you can always debate, would they have always been a democratic institution? That's a big, you know, what if, if you want. But there were aspects about them that's like, at least at the time, told, told like a neutral observer, let's say, well, they're, they're willing to play by the rules. They're willing to participate in, in some form of like civil society because Hamas always had a separation. To various extent, depending on the time and, 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 you know, the circumstances between its like civilian or like its government functions and its military functions. And those are separate groups. Like they're not necessarily even in contact with one another on a day, on a daily basis. There, there was uh, and that's a bit like with Hezbollah, although that's a different, um, there's a different dimension to that, which we can get into, but, um, they, they, they had to operate as a state providing services, you know, all of that stuff while at the same time being a very repressive, uh, movement, uh, pretty conservative, obviously, um, not exactly the best people to be under if you are anyone who's not part of the, you know, straight male, uh, not even majority, but like the straight male population. And obviously, if you're uh, non-Sunni, you will have certain restrictions as well. It's not quite as I've been seeing in the media at times, like, oh, they're just everyone is oppressed and so on. There is that element. But on a day to day basis, a lot more things, and this is obviously before the most recent war, a lot of things would come into play. Like, do you even have a connection to a Hamas member? Maybe then your life is a bit easier, even if you are personally more liberal, let's say. Stuff like that. Um, so that's kind of, um, Hamas in a very, very small nutshell, but that's kind of what they have been in any case since the, the early, early arts, right?
1: What is the structure of this government? such as it is even look at look like uh, they won the, and I want to note just that they won the election in 2006 by a plurality, not a majority was not. Yes, yes, yes. Um, so like is, you said that there are like government buildings and things like this, but is it uh, like, is there a Hamas councilman for a neighborhood? Like, like how does this work? Do we know?
2: We know, but I don't think I know, <laughs> I don't know the details in any case, but yes, my understanding is that to the extent that, you know, um, kind of like Fatah is like, they have institutions, there's a ministry of health, there's a ministry of whatnot with various degrees of autonomy, with various degrees of like, you know, if you are a militia man, uh, you probably don't have much to do with, uh, what the doctors are doing in their lives. You know, it's just, it's, there's a separation there, um. Hamas has tended, uh, for the most part, to basically pressure a lot of the population to, um, uh, well, to f- fall in line, right? Like to not there's no you, there's no freedom of expression in that sense. If there is, it's extremely limited. Uh, obviously, any other types of expressions, like an actual protest, uh, for the most part, would only really be possible. Not always. There have been exceptions, but would be possible if Hamas, like you know, ex- allows it. Um, which doesn't mean that they are not valid. That's more complicated, but it does mean that this is the circumstances in the same way that we know that a protest at the Ravha border in, in between Egypt and Gaza, uh, not easy to do if the Sisi regime doesn't approve it. Doesn't mean that the people who are there are not genuine. It doesn't mean that they don't genuinely mean the thing that they're saying. They just mean that those are part of the circumstances that can complicate the situation a bit. Um, so yeah, that's kind of a
0: bad answer because I don't want to give a wrong one, but, uh, yeah. So, what does it mean to fall in line, though? What's the line?
2: Well, the line is um, don't challenge us. Um, You know, don't uh, or if you do, I don't know, be very smart about it, quote unquote. Like you don't, you you don't go to the street and say fuck Hamas. Can we swear here? Sorry, I don't know. Yeah, okay. Like you don't just go to the street and say that. It's and there will be repercussions on you. There have been killings. There have been people who have been murdered um you know all of that you have people uh who even if you're suspected of spying for the israelis uh let alone obviously if you are caught actually spying for the israelis but even if you're suspected um your life can just be over it's not it's not quite a fair and representative process the judicial system i mean in, in that sense that being said uh Hamas has always occupied a pretty complicated position within Gaza because the situation itself has always been dire, or at least has been for the past couple of decades at the very least, more or less. Uh, and so a lot of people, including like pretty close friends of mine who are very not on the Islamist side of things, very liberal, progressive, atheist, queer, all, all of the, all of the good things are not, um, have been at times not necessarily supportive of Hamas, but more like, well, those are the guys in town those are the, that those are the main players that's what we have and it's part of my frustration a lot of the time is like well if where is the Palestinian Mandela or whatever like for one probably under the rebels or in some Israeli prison or in exile there there aren't many there isn't exactly a situation that's conducive to sort of like a healthy and vibrant civil society. That any place would almost naturally and organically develop, because people don't like living in rubble. Like that's not exactly something that people like to do. And so Hamas has kind of been, in many ways, the 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 in the I don't know the what's the word I'm looking for. Like the the prison owners, or at least the prison managers. Uh, and you know, Israel in this case would be the prison owner, but like the prison managers, and at the same time, like the other ones that can. Temporarily let you play in the playground or let temporarily tell you we're, we're going to protect, we're going to defend you against the actual owners or against the people who are committing, who are causing the blockade, blockade or whatnot. And so the average person in Gaza who have to, people always, I always have to emphasize this, a good good half of the population is underage. Like the life expectancy in Gaza is not very high. And uh, obviously due to the blockade. And so for many people who are on the edge right now, their entire existence has been the blockade. Like they don't know anything else. They don't, they're not sitting in cafes debating the, the differences between the 67 war and the 73 war and whether uh, the Oslo Accord were a good idea or not. They're not. They're, they're just in this very dire circumstances. And there is a group like Hamas that says basically like, we will protect you. And as far as they are concerned, up until like the most recent uh, massacre, This was sort of true. Now, whether it was a good thing? No, it wasn't. It was never a good thing. But Hamas and Israel have basically had some kind of power equilibrium for the past decade or so. There would be tits for tats. Hamas throws some rockets. Israel bombs some places. Hamas gets something as a return. Israel says, we have declared victory. We have destroyed X amount of tunnels. We have destroyed or killed this commander or killed this jihadi leader or killed this associate or whatever. Hamas can then say also, well, we have stopped the bombings then that's a victory of sorts if there's nothing else to count on as th- that, that can even count as a victory or oh, in a victory as as like something good. There's there's like, it's the, the only game in town in, in that sense.
0: Yeah, so I think my answer was too long. No, I don't think so. Uh, okay. So if you were, I mean, does Hamas, like, are they capable if they wanted to, and let's say they had a real partner on the israeli side i mean are they interested in negotiating a peace or is it all rockets all the time and and, i mean so what i've been reading is Mm. the hamas chatter uh charter rather is you know basically from the river to the sea i mean you know no israelis no israel um anyway so i'm just wondering like how do you get uh, talk started, or uh, can you get talk started with these part, these two sides? Mm-hmm. You know, I know the Netanyahu government. I'm not going to say is like you know looking for peace, but with the Palestinians, that's for sure. But anyway, I just, what do you think? So, again, with the huge caveat
2: here being before two weeks ago, because the dynamics are such right now that it can go to like a different scale of things that. I don't know. Like it, honestly, if Hezbollah gets involved in a serious way, Hamas is like very weak in comparison to Hezbollah. They don't really compare, um, and I, I, I would, I would, I would be glad to talk about that as well. Um, Hamas has said many times, and again, like this is not to give them credit or whatever. That's just what they have said, either in well, you know the leadership that's in exile in Qatar or within um, uh, Gaza itself. Have said that they are willing to negotiate and have said that, uh, they are willing to recognize even. And there was this story that I think, uh, Yair Wallah, who's this, uh, Israeli academic, he mentioned how I think it was last year, if I'm not mistaken, or at least at, like before this most recent wave of violence. Um, one of the Hamas leaders sent a, a note to Netanyahu in Hebrew, uh, saying, I don't remember the exact quote, but something along the lines of like, let's find Something, let's find a deal or let's find a compromise or let's let's that doesn't mean that they are like it's not to give them credit, right? But in the same way that I wouldn't give the Netanyahu regime credit for anything, not just because of what they uh do, obviously, but for what they say. So for me, it's like both to be taken into account. So Hamas's actions say one thing, and they don't all say rocket, 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 kill all the Jews and whatnot. They also say we are in this situation. And I hope I'm I'm saying these things like uh, I hope this is not uh, I hope you understand I'm kind of paraphrasing and not even like it's not this is not good language basically but that's just how dire the situation is, um, but like they would not they're not just that there's an element of them that is that but there is an element of them that's like you know they wear their ties they they like to go to Qatar and negotiate with the Americans and the Israelis and they like to. Play the politics, the game of politics and of geopolitics and all of that stuff. And more importantly, they are a party that doesn't want to die. They want to survive. They want to exist as a serious political party, which, you know, is what most political parties do. So at one point, I think right now in the past couple of weeks, I don't know what the next Hamas is going to look like because for one, breaching the fence border whatever is one thing and if they had stopped at that that could have actually been understandable justifiable is a different thing for me and that's like immoral ethics whatever but it would be an understandable thing to do because it's a blockade and when you're under a blockade i think it's not an unreasonable thing to want to get out of that blockade like that's just for me a a normal human thing but obviously what they did immediately after doing that the massacre at the rave the massacre of random civilians and all of that stuff that's obviously a line crossed And it's a kind of a, it was a bizarre thing for them to do. And I don't know if quite the term is bizarre, if the term bizarre is quite accurate, just because it doesn't quite follow their previous modus. It doesn't reflect the actions
1: of a political body that wants to uh, continue, I think, right? They would have had, you would have had to have known that. Doing that was going to be was was going to wake up this military power next to you in a way that it had not been awakened before, right? Or at least not in the past decade.
2: Yeah. Um, so I've heard different analyses of specifically why does this, this specifically happen? One one version of events that I think is plausible, I can never know for sure, of course. So people please don't hate me. This is just a plausible um scenario, if you want, of what happened, is that they the, the mission was to enter, get some hostages and negotiate with those hostages to get Palestinian uh, prisoners of Israel in Israel to get them out and to have a, a hostage. Really. This has happened in the past. So it's not unusual that it would happen again. And the main difference, obviously, right now is just how the scale of how many hostages they have. I think as of now, it's around 222 still um, in in Gaza and how kind of relatively sophisticated the entire operation was. So that, that's one version of events that, oh, this is how it started. But then an argument that I've seen is that what seems to have happened is that they were themselves surprised by how relatively easy it was to enter. And then mostly their lower ranking members, many of whom are very young, not that this is an excuse, found themselves suddenly in a position of power where they were, as far as they're concerned, in a position of powerlessness their entire lives. And they quite literally took it out on civilians. Now, this is obviously not an excuse. I hope this is clear. It's just something that we see in terms of when we see power dynamics in different, in, in different places. This does sometimes happen. But regardless of what the initial causes or rationale or what not happened, the fact of the matter is that this many people were murdered, and this is a line crossed. It's a line crossed for Palestinians, for that matter, because that's not part of the Palestinian cause. It's not. It's not something that it has ever really been a serious... There's always been Palestinians that have murdered civilians. As you know, you have uh, during the Israeli occupation of Lebanon, you have Lebanese that wanted to kill Israeli civilians. But most people in that situation focus on military targets. There's like a rules of engagement, um, ethics almost, that it doesn't look good for them, even within their base, that they don't make distinctions between you know a an armed military soldier, uh, like an armed soldier, I mean, And a child or just a random person dancing like it doesn't look too good within their uh obviously within their most extreme base yes maybe but for the most part most people are like relatively sober and understand that if you do a certain thing especially if it's like something this massive that will have a certain resonance and therefore a certain uh reply that will Clearly, even if you think about it just purely on military terms, clearly like not be worth it, essentially. And yet it's what happened. So another version of event or like an interpretation of what's happened. And again, I do not know for sure which one it is. It just seems plausible to me because last year we had the rapprochement between Hamas and the Iranian side. Hamas and Iran were not on good terms. They were actually on very hostile terms because Hamas in Syria was against the Assad regime. Hamas was... To some extent still is, broadly speaking, allied with the Muslim Brotherhood. So more on the, you know, um, Sunni Islamist side of things in Syria rather than the Iranian side of things in Syria. And there's also an organic, uh, bond, if you want to link between a, 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 a good chunk of the Hamas base. And here I'm talking about just like your ordinary civilian that might be a sympathizer of Hamas. And let's say the Free Syria Army at the time. So it's not. It was not unusual to see like Hamas fighters of the Quds Brigade, for example, uh, walk down the streets of Gaza with a Free Syria, like a revolutionary Syrian flag, um, a- around them. You know, it's, it was not un- unusual. It, just in the same way as you, to this day in in Idlib today, you will see a protest, and you would see like people in Idlib in Syria waving the Palestinian and the Free Syria flag together, because there's a good. There's a good percentage of the population that has experienced oppression. How they interpret that oppression is something else, but they have experienced oppression that might see some link between their experience and the experience of someone. If you're from Idlib, maybe, or Aleppo before 2016 and someone who was in Gaza at the time or someone in Gaza with someone who's in Aleppo and Idlib and so on. And Hamas was not in, so was not in that axis of resistance since, quote unquote, as Hezbollah calls it, at least not after the Arab Spring or shortly after the Arab Spring. They cut ties with the Assad regime. They cut ties with Hezbollah. There were even active fights within Syria between Hamas and Hezbollah. And they were certainly not, uh, on good terms with Iran. Now, last year, there has been a rapprochement. Um, it's because Islamic Jihad being the one that's closer, the, the party being closer to Iran, they sort of mend the ties. And now they, they, I don't quite know how they work on the inside. But my understanding is that they have like a joint command kind of thing, or at least they they talk to one another when they they decide to do certain things. And also, as importantly, their relationship with Hezbollah, which is a much stronger party, and their relationship with Iran, which is obviously a geo regional power or regional power, has shifted since last year. So one interpretation of what happened is that they may have felt emboldened by this, and they may have thought, whether rightly or wrongly that they will be bailed out, That, i.e. that something would happen on the second front, as the Israelis called it, on the northern front, that Hezbollah would do something, forcing the Israelis to basically be very stretched out, which would then force them to come to the negotiating table or to whatnot to then give Hamas uh, or concede to Hamas some of the demands that they would have wanted or would have asked, including, most importantly and maybe most symbolically powerful, the release of Palestinian prisoners in Israel. Because doing so is like also their way of saying, look, we can get something out of them. We can actually make demands out of the occupiers. So my hunch, and maybe in the weeks and days and weeks and months to come, we will know more and more, is that it was probably a combination of those two. We still don't know what Hezbollah will really do. Like there have been tits for tats, but as of now it's not completely out of the ordinary, although more Hezbollah fighters have been killed recently than in a very long time, I don't know if since 2006, but certainly in a very long time. So this might yet change the dynamics on the ground. Um, but it's quite also possible that they may have been given this guarantee uh, by Hezbollah or by Iran uh, via Islamic Jihad. And I should say, even within Lebanon, Hezbollah has become has been since last year more tolerant of Hamas and Islamic Jihad factions, which are not many, but they exist, uh, operating within southern Lebanon, for example. Was before, like Hezbollah would accept no, uh, like a complete hegemony of of operations there, um, and so it's quite possible that this is they thought this is, the, or they would given a guarantee or whatnot, and it may yet be that Hezbollah delivers on that guarantee, in which case I honestly fear for us all, and I'm I'm not exaggerating, uh, but if. Not. It might be that uh, Hezbollah did give them a guarantee, but then decided to back down. Maybe because the Israeli uh, response was so violent and so brutal that even Hezbollah is sort of rethinking a bit to re- rethink strategy. I don't know. And obviously, I have no way to know right now. But those two uh, scenarios, in my view, seemed if accurate, for me, makes the most sense in terms of what was most likely the or what most likely happened in terms of what they decided and so on.
0: Uh, First of all, I'd want to say that I really do hope that many people, if not most people, share your point of view about what happened on the 7th in terms of the horror uh, of it. Um, I know from speaking to relatives in Israel and uh, here in the States, one of the great fears that Jews have right now is being abandoned and that people are celebrating uh what happened um you know even here in the united states uh we've had i don't know if you've been paying attention because well, you don't need to uh but you know the academic I, I feel like, i feel i
2: have to because whatever happens in the u.s
0: is gonna affect me so yeah they're right i, I try right. to yeah i try yeah, to. no, that makes sense um but you know in, in some of the biggest academic institutions uh, there was uh, this immense equivocation Saying, you know, the violence cycle of violence, you know, violence on both sides. Um, and uh, I just, you know, I just wanted to say, you know, it's I don't know, it's good to hear that at least your point of view, or if, uh, I mean, do you think your point of view is widely common? Held or, yeah, <laughs> that, that basically, basically,
2: uh, I mean, I, I don't know, I would say it's not. Like my point of view, let's say is not, it's not really extreme. It's not seen as like, because the extremist positions, if we want to call them that, are more like the Hezbollah types. So my, my point, and on the other side, on the flip side, you will have like the more right wing slash far right, like Lebanese Christian nationalists that are, they wouldn't always say so, but they're more sympathetic to Israel than they are to Iran, for example, or even to, to Hezbollah within Lebanon. So those exist. And like, those would be considered extremist positions. My position is, um, or my, my view on this is relatively mild. I would say it's not that out of the ordinary, uh, even if, and, and this is like, maybe it takes us to a different, um, on a different, I don't know. You, you tell me if this is like out of our, like two, two out of two out of there. But, uh, I know a lot of folks, uh, friends, especially in Lebanon who would post a lot of things online and maybe need to pause a sec before posting. I think that there's a lot of problems related to the internet right now and social media of people sharing, um, very emotional like they can be very generally emotionally distraught by seeing like a hospital bombed in gaza or or like a un school destroyed or um some not all but some of the israeli reactions online which have been pretty nauseating to look at and react also very viscerally and very like fuck everything and destroy it all and and even like start supporting kind of supporting hezbollah but not quite and those are people who are not as i said Secular, uh, queer, some of many of them, atheists, like democratic, what have you. But it gets to a point where it gets so cynical and so desperate and so hopeless that they are basically saying, well, again, the same as I said before with Hamas and and Gazans, like, what 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 other games and towns are there? As soon as the the massacre happened. Um, the Americans, the Europeans, you know, basically the Western powers are saying, of course, condemning this, this is a terrorist attack and that's fine. And honestly, not a lot of people would have a problem with that in of itself, condemning it for what it was, which was a massacre, uh, multiple massacres for that matter. But then saying like Israel has the right to defend itself. Okay. That's one thing, you know, it could be, could be understood and especially in the context of immediately responding to an actual massacre. But then. Kind of giving carte blanche to the, to the Israelis, as uh, the Prime Minister Rishi Sunak said, as basically Biden said multiple times. Biden, who seems to have, I don't know, li- lied about seeing beheadings that he didn't really see and stuff like that. Like it's gotten to the point where, and now in Germany, the, the repression against Palestinian supporters and Palestinians themselves and saying stuff like we will not, the conservative leader just today saying stuff like we will not allow any Palestinian from Gaza coming to Germany because we have enough anti-Semitic young men in Germany. And it's like, I don't know. I, I feel like sometimes I'm losing my mind. Like the Germans are talking to me about anti-Semitism. Like the Germans of all, like I, I generally feel like I'm losing my minds at times. But to uh, go back a bit, I don't think it's an unusual position. I, and I mean, everyone I talk to, and sure, my circle of friends are more on the left than not and, and what have you. But even the things that I read, Sure, you'll have certain languages. Like for example, they would say al uh, ihtilal the occupation, or you know uh al ihtilal the, the 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 occupation army to refer to the entire IDF. And this maybe that might sound a bit off. I don't know to an English speaker or to an American or maybe to an Israeli. I don't know, but it's not that unusual if you're in Lebanon and your experience of the IDF is that of an occupation force. So it it that's just the term that you would use. You would even have terms that are. Very problematic, do not get me wrong here, and I'm not comfortable with them. But a lot of people in the Arab world will say Al Yahud, the Jews, in order to actually mean the Israelis. Because for the most part their rea- their relationship to and to a Jewish person, or what they you know, the maybe the, the one most popping up in the in their news happens to be in Israeli. So there is this equivalence between the two that for example wouldn't necessarily extend if they are talking to an American Jew. Oh, okay. This person is also a Jewish person, but they're also American, and that's it. Like that's the end of the conversation. It's not necessarily something that is politically relevant, if you see what I mean, or even culturally relevant. And so it's a mess, right? And I don't think my particular—I I have views that I'm like, you know, I'm I'm also more on the anarchist side of things. I, I'm not a fan of nation states, all of that stuff. But that's not that's not what I necessarily use as my my starting point to reach that kind of analytical conclusions. If you want, I'm trying to just understand the situation for what it is as much as I can and try to understand the quote unquote different sides. As I said before, I don't really like sides but I try and understand it. And that's in, in order to make sense of it, because it doesn't make much sense for me to say those people are just born hating those other people. And that's what it is.
1: And we are all fucked. And What's that's a cop out. Because that seems to be a lot
2: yeah, it's for me. It's I agree. It's a cop out. I think it doesn't explain anything.
1: Um, we have this. We want this rush to get to certainties, to have like things kind of squared away, and be able to just say like, "All right, well, I understand this. I can put it in my box." Um, and this is a situation that uh, that simply does not work, and it doesn't work in most situations, uh, really. Um, but. This, like, the, the I've never seen anything quite like this that eschews simple answers and simple explanations, right? All right, Angry Planet listeners, we're going to pause there for a break. We'll be right back after this. All right, Angry Planet listeners, welcome back. We are back on with Joey Ayub. Another... Yeah. Only at sleep number stores or sleepnumber.com. Ignorant question. If I can okay. if I can jump in. Jason, okay. you've got it's one. Okay. Uh, if I can
2: answer, I'll answer it, of course.
0: No, I uh, Matthew, I, I've grown used to your questions. <laughs> and-
1: <laughs> uh Wow, that was a good burn for a Monday morning. Uh I guess Monday afternoon uh, <laughs> Um Another, we're we're kind of talking about some of the narrative lines that we're seeing kind of run through media over and over again. Uh, Another one that I wanted to ask you about is this idea that Benjamin Netanyahu, and I was trying to find the quote while we were talking, I couldn't find the exact quote, um, built up Hamas as a way to delegitimize a Palestinian state uh, is there any truth to this? You know, this is not, and this is something that's in like, Oh yes. Yeah. 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 No, there
2: is. (laughs) No, no, this is, it's not a conspiracy. Yeah. Sorry. It's not This is again, the Hamas contained book goes into it in much more detail than, than I probably can explain it, but it's, and it's not rocket science in some sense. If you are someone like him who is very smart and arguably one of the most cynical human beings I've ever seen in my life. Like, I think this should be agreed. (laughs) um, Dealing with a PLO type of uh group is more difficult than dealing with a Hamas type. The PLO, for all of its flaws, and there were many, you could talk to it. And it had some representative representative value. It even had like Jewish members in its ranks. It obviously had many Christian members in its ranks and atheists and communists and so on. And it had a version of an interpretation of reality, if you want, that was more accommodating than a group like Hamas, or especially a group like Hezbollah, but that's a different story because it's more direct related to Iran and Lebanon's civil war at the time. So at the time, as I said, like Hamas and Israel reached a a, a violent but an equilibrium. Like it's an equilibrium in the in a political sense, in the sense that there were tits. But that's because that's the only way Hamas can get the Israelis' attention. The Israelis pay attention and they respond because they have to, because they don't want to lose face or whatever. And they need to show maybe to their allies that they can deal with Hamas. And there's some kind of like uh, trade of like, you know, give us money, uh, allow permits, which kind of shows a bit the, the desperation of the situation in on the ground in Gaza, that one of the negotiating uh One of the things, one of the demands that sometimes Hamas would make is give permits to X amount of Palestinians to go and work in Israel. Because at the end of the day, you have this power power differential, regardless of the ideologies of not even Hamas recognizes, obviously, that Israel is an actual state. It's powerful. It's richer. And so you kind of have to deal with that reality. And so… Yes, not too long. I, this is why I do not have the timeline and Tarek would be, Tariq, uh, in English pronunciation would be a better, uh, source on that. And so I'm happy to send you the links if you want to put stuff in the description
1: and stuff. Um, it sounds like we should just have him on the show and doing a whole, uh, do a whole Hamas episode, honestly. Go for it. <laughs> I recommend him. He's very good. Um,
2: but, uh, yeah, um, the, uh, let's, I'm going to say about a decade ago and this is give or take some years. I'm not sure. Um, actually, what am I talking about? Sorry. Even going further back. In the early days, and this does go beyond before Netanyahu, I should say, the Israeli state as a whole saw, found it easier to deal with Islamists than to deal with secular nationalists. Again, this is not new. Uh, this was actually the case in Lebanon, not just with the, between the Israelis and the Lebanese and Palestinians, but between the Assad regime and the Israeli, the, the Palestinians and the Lebanese. Like, can I, uh, let me just quickly give the Lebanon example because for me, it's more indicative like after the civil war erupted in 75 for various reasons that we won't get into the vast majority of the parties that formed the, here yeah, I don't remember the English uh, translation, but the Lebanese national coalition or something, some kind of neutral term like that uh, were like a Palestinian um, resistance forces. Uh, the vast majority of whom were either on the left or at least pan Arab or pan, you know, nationalists, Palestinian nationalists, uh, Lebanese communists, uh, some Islamists, but not many, because in the 70s, that was not a massive thing. Uh, Nasserites and other obviously Nasserites at the time were a thing. Well, in Lebanon, they said still a thing, but they're very small. Um, and so that was, the, that was the main, that was the main resistance. And, and resistance again to the set, to, in that neutral term of there was an occupying force and they were resisting that occupying force. Therefore, they are a resistance, whether you like it, whether you like that term or not. Um, and so up until '82, the majority of that resistance was secular and left-wing, and and you know again for all of the flaws that they may may or may not have, like closer to an IRA if you want than a uh, Hamas or a Hezbollah. But in the '80s, as the occupation after '82, especially, uh, started becoming more and more brutal, that allowed for the the rise of a group like Hezbollah, which obviously was. In good, good part created by Iran, after the Iranian Revolution in '79, the Islamic Revolution in Iran in '79, in order to form as a counterweight to the secular and communist and pan-Arabist uh, coalition. because in '76, and this is before '82, before the Iranian Revolution, before all of that, that coalition was actually winning the Lebanese Civil war. and so that that threatened. What at the time was the Maronite Christian, and I should say that's my background, that my people, quote unquote. But that that coalition, that um, side of the equation, if you want, the right-wing Lebanese Christian nationalists were losing. They had like a very small uh, percentage of the Lebanese territory, and in theory, the war could have ended in seventy-six or seventy-seven. The Syrian regime at the time, Hafiz al-Assad, actually went to the Americans, quite literally. Kissinger was there at the time, and he's still there with us because he never dies. Um, 100 year old guy. Um, he literally went to the Americans and said, like, I can take care of this for you guys. And here I can recommend the, the episode with Ziad Majid, who was one one of the most active, um, Lebanese left wing thinkers, especially on, uh, around 2005, 2006 in Lebanon, which were significant for other reasons here. Um, and so anyway, Hafiz al-Assad, the father of Bashar al-Assad, of course, went to the Americans, made say, I am the one who can protect the Christians. I'm the one who can defend them. And that was almost all that was needed to say, even though that wasn't actually accurate or whatever, but that's how, that's how geopolitics for you, and RealPolitik, Al-Kissinger, and all of that stuff. So the Syrian army actually invaded Lebanon in 76. They assassinated Kamal Jumblatt in 77, who was the leader of that coalition that I mentioned. And so by the time the Israelis entered, really entered, they were there beforehand in terms of fighting the Palestinians and all of that stuff. But when they the proper invasion of Lebanon in 82 happened, that coalition was so weakened that it facilitated, obviously, the Israeli invasion. So you can argue that the Syrian invasion facilitated the Israeli invasion, which is quite ironic, but that's accurate. And so that, uh, the, they were facilitated into entering Lebanon. It became easier for them to do so. They obviously bombarded Beirut. There was a siege, the Samuel Shatina massacre, all of that stuff that happened in 82. And the occupation stayed in southern Lebanon at one point. They withdrew to, to that side of, of Lebanon. And that facilitated the rise of a group like Hezbollah, which was nowhere to be found in the 70s. It did not exist. As I said, literally created by Iran after 79. And before that, there was a different group that then became, actually it was called Islamic Jihad, not related, but that became the, you know, Hezbollah and so on and so forth. And Hezbollah rose to power partly by assassinating communist leaders in the south. Mehdi Amil is a very famous person who was himself of Shia background. He was a Marxist communist thinker. And he was assassinated by Hezbollah. Not really a secret. It's one of those things that, like, if you read a book, an autobiography by his partner or his cousin or whatnot, they just say so. Like, matter of fact, like, everyone knows this. But because Hezbollah is what it is today, you can't quite talk about it in those same terms. You have to, you know, maybe be more nuanced, say, oh, the fog of war or, or, you know, whatever. But that's what it is. And by the, when that happened, Israel, in my opinion, had a better enemy. Because an enemy like Hezbollah is a much easier enemy to sell. And this is before (laughs) 9-11. After 9-11 with the war on terror and like all Islamists are the same, all jihadis are the same. It's all the same. We need to just destroy everything and bomb everything. That became a much easier uh, selling point as well for the Israelis to basically say, hey, we're we're like you. You guys were bombed by Al-Qaeda. We are under threat by Hezbollah. You know, And Hezbollah were, for their part, kind of happy playing that role because they were uh, pissing off the Israelis. That was good for their base. And so you had, again, another violent equilibrium You know that, that kind of established itself. With Hamas, it's kind of a similar story, although the actors are different and dynamics are different.
0: I would just point out that the PLO is responsible for thousands of deaths, quite yeah. literally, including yeah. uh, at the Munich Olympics where they murdered uh, Israeli athletes and uh, they took hostages all over the place, aircraft, uh, as well as ships. Hey, and this isn't to argue that they were good. I'm, I'm just saying moment. they suck.
1: Yeah,
2: sure. I'm happy with that. <laughs> but, you know, the IRA, the IRA killed civilians as well. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. No, I'm not it, a big
0: fan of them, I got to say. <laughs>
2: <laughs> but, you know, what I'm trying to say with all of that is that they come from a certain context, and which you can understand, quote, unquote, yeah. not necessarily justify. And that context can be tackled. In the same way that you don't have to like the IRA to still think the Good Fridays Agreement is a better deal than not having it, although it was flawed. But that, that's yeah. sort of what I'm, what I'm going for is that it's the Good Fridays Agreement, especially giving freedom of movement to people in Northern Ireland to also opt for Irish citizenship if they can, which became very handy after Brexit, I should say, and all of that stuff. That allowed for a reduction of temperature. Like for me, my concern is how do we lower the temperature? Because There are these maximalist positions, as as they are called, that are not... And here, this isn't a both sides or whatever. It's just a fact of the matter is that in the moment, what matters is, for example, now, what matters is a ceasefire to just stop the destruction because random people are being murdered, and that is not good, to actually tackle some of the roots of the problem. Maybe not all. Maybe it's not possible to deal with all of them because so much time has passed and whatnot. I don't know. But the blockade of Gaza is a blockade. And a blockade does not mean that, oh, you can, you just now open the gates and, uh, you're now happy with Hamas running all over, because I know this is not a good selling point. I understand that. But for the average citizen, for the average civilian in Gaza, that doesn't have much to do with that situation. Because as I said, most of them were just born in that situation and have stayed in that situation. A lot, a lot more can be done to ease tensions to work towards social justice, to actually allow some freedom of movement. Like, for example, someone in Gaza who has relatives with someone in the West Bank or someone in Jerusalem, or even someone within Israel proper, they can't see them. They can't just go there. They can't attend the wedding. Or if they do, they need to uh, get uh, approval from the Israelis. Like, hey, can you allow me to go to my cousin's wedding? And Israel Israel says no most of the time. And, you know, this that situation, that very humiliating day-to-day situations, creates at least funnels or fuels if you want sorry fuels a movement like hamas i want hamas gone i want them destroyed i am not a fan of them i want hezbollah gone although that's going to be a more difficult situation but i in order for that to happen the things that gave rise to them and maybe more importantly because you cannot quite turn back the clock but the thing that allows them to be sustained today maybe again not all of them maybe you don't have control over iran for example but an american in an America, ideal democratic situation would have some influence over what the us foreign policy should or shouldn't be about and that's how it's perceived that's how it's understood like if there is if democracy is supposed to be better than non-democracy and i certainly believe that it has to show something it has to sh- show for something it has you, you you should be able to see that okay with a democratic government like again the us as flawed as it is or even israel with even more flawed as it is Something good should be able to come out of it. And that's what kind of concerns me right now is that the lessons being drawn are for the Israeli side, not all in Israel, of course, but the Netanyahu side specifically is that it's always an all for nothing. You always do all for nothing. If you even risk doing nothing, you will be destroyed and you will be politically destroyed. And I, I still think Netanyahu is probably politically dead, but that's a different conversation. Um And you have to just... Go full at it. Show that you have zero, zero emotions. Like you just, you're going to destroy, you're going to bomb, you're going to just annihilate as, mu- as many people as you can, as many neighborhoods as you can. And that will teach them a lesson. And I think we're at the stage right now where Gaza has been bombed so many times that I quite literally do not know how many times Gaza has been bombed. I literally do not know how many civilians have been killed since the blockade has started. I just know that in the most recent couple of weeks, about a thousand children on their own have been killed. And I just, I'm at the stage right now where I don't quite understand what is even the end game, because annihilating all of Gaza and, uh, you know, ethnically cleansing everyone in Gaza to the Sinai Desert, as some Israelis uh, that foreign minister, I don't, ex foreign minister said on Al Jazeera a couple of weeks ago, is a pretty insane thing to say. And yet, this has kind of been normalized. It has been normalized within Israeli politics, and so there has to be some kind of pushback. Within Israel, ideally, obviously, and I'm happy to support anti-occupation activists, peace activists, as flawed as I'm sure many of them are, versus what we have in the Likud government with the extreme right and all of that stuff. If it doesn't come from Israel, and if at least is not likely to come from within Israel, at least not now, I think it's the responsibility of Israel's allies, which clearly have a lot of, of influence here because they provide a lot of them. Not all of it, obviously, but a lot of the money and weaponry that they can at least use as a bargaining chip in order to say, okay, well, we need a, we need to force some kind of negotiation here. The Good Friday's agreement were not seen as a likely thing until they happened. The Camp David's accord, again, with all of the flaws were not seen as a, as a thing that was even possible until they actually happened. Hamas are not just, I feel like I need, please don't get me wrong, right? Like I'm not, they could be gone tomorrow and I would be a happy person. But right now, they're just the reality on the ground and they have said that they are willing to negotiate, to talk, to do all of this. And therefore, if the alternative, if the two options here is bomb, 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 regardless of how many people are murdered, in order to hope that for some reason you can destroy all of them, even though one of the leaders of Hamas is still in the tunnel to this day and the idea somehow hasn't found him yet. Like if you, if that's the, if that's the plan, we're, we're seeing at a campaign of extermination. We're just witnessing a campaign of extermination that's being normalized. And that terrifies me. It terrifies me for Palestinians in Gaza, first and foremost. But it terrifies me for what this says in terms of what is acceptable, what is, uh, you know, the, rule, the new rules of engagement and whatnot. Like, that's what concerns me beyond even that, the specificities of that conflict right now.
0: Right or wrong, though, both sides do see this right now as an existential war. Um, and I, agree. I think that makes it that much harder. I mean, <laughs> as if you can make problems in the Middle East harder, you might not be able to, but uh, you know, really, I know from talking to friends and everything I've been reading, and um, yeah, it just feels like it's a matter of whether you know, if if you uh, Jewish people, uh, even in the United States, kind of feel like The walls are closing in. I mean, you know, now I'm not – it's probably not rational, um, but it's amazing. I sent Matthew, and I'd have to share it with you, too. There's a a woman who wrote um, this great book called uh, People Love Dead Jews. Oh, I know it. Yeah, yeah. You know the book? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And uh, anyway, she wrote something for The New York Times that just – not so much justifying anything, but really kind of explaining – uh, where some people are when we had, you know, when you have people screaming uh, for, you know, for you to cease to exist and, you know, and I'm hearing you because what you're saying is it's the same thing. It's, I mean, it's being seen and may be an existential struggle where, you know, the Jews are, are Israelis and and they're not as separate as, as uh, people may think. Or maybe they are. Um, you know, they see it the exact same way that it's just a matter of like, it seems like people are seeing it like one side will survive. Um, and that's, I would just say that's not really possible. <laughs> I mean, first of all, there are a lot more Arabs uh, mm. than there are Jews in the world. There are a lot more everybody else than there are Jews in the world. It's hard to imagine um, everything just, uh, you know, things working out. But
2: Jason, you said something, if if I may, like, it's, I think it's actually important. You said, okay, it may not be rational, but it, it like, it feels that way. And I, I feel like we need to emphasize how much of the world today is just that. Ration, being rational is a bit overrated, But <laughs> at least it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's overly like we, we, we invest so much in the fact that we think we are rational actors who are, you know, perfect consumers and whatnot and there are lots of problems with that as well but it doesn't have to be rational for it to feel true and that's just that's just a fact uh whether we like it or not so i spend a lot of my time as i said i come from a specific background in lebanon i may also be palestinian which i am but i grew up among lebanese christians many of whom were uh like i just call them this like the serbian ultra nationalists of the middle east like they were kind of that uh, they are very far right, very racist, very anti-Semitic, very Islamophobic, very all, all of the bad stuff. Um, and many of them are there to this day. Uh, most recently they had the, the, they call, they call themselves the, the soldiers of God, uh, or soldiers of the Lord rather would be the translation, uh, Christian nationalists in Lebanon who apparently have taken it upon themselves to terrorize every queer person that exists in Lebanon because that's their priority right now. And so those are the people that I'm familiar with. I, I generally grew up with those people. One of my close friends at the time, his mom wrote the autobiography. We're no longer friends. Uh wrote the autobiography of one of the main warlords in that group, Samir Jaja. Um wrote the autobiography, I should say, because it's not really an autobiography. <laughs> uh but that that's those are the people I'm familiar with. And so, you know cynicism and um helplessness and and because one thing that they would always say is that there are many more muslims than there are christians in the middle east and that's numerically accurate (laughs) sure it is now in lebanon it's actually very different because lebanon is a very special place and has very specific uh political reality if you want where christians are not actually in danger in any in any meaningful sense if anything they have disproportionate amount of power in lebanon in terms of their actual percentage in the country the president has to be a Maronite christian according to the constitution etc etc and the the general of the army as well and other folks and so i i have seen people who and i grew up as i said with those people who would say things like if we don't do this or if we don't let israel Destroy all of Dahi and southern Lebanon and the, the west, the east of Lebanon, sorry, and so on. We will be next, i.e. they will come for us. Now, the fact that they have never come for us doesn't change that equation. And if they do come for us, they, they only need to do so once for the, the past like 30 years of paranoia and, and, and fear and anxiety to just be confirmed. You don't need more than once. And so that's what I mean when I say that Hamas, crossed a line an actual line that needs to be acknowledged that can't just be wished away as one of the hamas leaders who was interviewed in al jazeera at the same time uh, at the same he was interviewed before i believe the the israeli ex-foreign minister Ya Yaalon, y- alone something forgot his name um uh said like you know actually no we didn't kill any civilians that's propaganda and whatnot because you know they're gonna stick to the ranks right that's if that's the response instead of saying well uh a, a faction of our, like a group of ours, a percent. If they could have just said that a percentage of our fighters, a minority of firefighters, they could say, uh disobeyed orders and committed a massacre, and we will deal with them. They would have executed. They could have executed them on the spot. Even like scapegoated random people and executed them on the spot, and this could have been a good enough story for the rest of the world. And they didn't do that, and that's their choice. I'm not saying. Executing random people is a good thing. But they could have done that. They have done that in the past. They could have done that, and they chose not to. And that tells me that either they generally thought, as I said before, that there would be a northern front maybe coming from Hezbollah that uh, eases the burden against them. Because, And we should say this. It's important. Part of the reason why they managed to even do the thing that they did is that they identified correctly so that the IDF was very stretched out because they were too busy propping up the occupation of the West Bank. And this is because of Netanyahu's political priorities. They identified that, they recognized a flaw in the machine, if you want, and they took advantage of that flaw. Now I'm I've gotten to the point where I generally don't expect Western governments to care as to whether I die or not, or people like me die or not. Palestinians, Lebanese, and so on die or not. I grew up in post-9-11, the invasion of Iraq and so on, like I I feel like I know better uh, by now. Um, sorry, my dog cho- is choosing to uh, chase her own tail right now. Come here. All okay. right. Um, this is the seriousness of the conversation, right? Um, God bless pets. Um, what I was I saying? So I so I, I stopped expecting it. It still bothers me. It still hurts me. It still makes me very sad when I see statements coming out from, like, especially Germany these days, uh, but also France, the UK. Like I'm in Switzerland, so it's like they're all around me. Um, like it, it, it saddens me and it worries me and I'm concerned when I see uh, memes and images and videos of people openly saying like Beirut is the next Gaza because that's like most of my family, like that scares me. That genuinely does scare me. But as I said, I have those two hats on at the beginning. One where I'm freaking out all the time, and the other one I try to put my analytical hat on. And my analytical hat on says, if the only thing that the West cares about is whether uh, you know Israelis die or not. The politics of Benjamin Netanyahu are a clusterfuck. They're a very bad. Pol- it's just not good politics. It does not. It's not conducive to fewer people dying because you just can just put the numbers right now. It's not good. It's not working, and so there has to there has to be something that gives. There has to be something that's like put some pressure. As I said, maybe from within right now is not very likely. Although I have seen many Israelis be very pissed off at the Likud and at Netanyahu, understandably so because they understood. And I think they are right in that understanding that Netanyahu has made a decision to basically sacrifice the hostages. Like It just does not matter to him. I think we need, we need to acknowledge this. And I'm worried for those hostages. I don't want random civilians killed, regardless of where they're from. But in order to turn down the temperature, in order to try and turn it down just a tiny bit, there has to be some acknowledgement of what it, what it is to exist in a place like Gaza that's all i mean that's all that's like a first step to even acknowledge what it is but what we're seeing now are like we're going to turn gaza into a parking lot they're human animals as the idf general said like day two or day three we're going to cut off water we're going to basically treat them all as potential terrorists even if they are like there's 130 preemies right now premature babies they may already be dead as far as as far as i know now very sensitive to me because my child that was born last week is a premature baby Because they need a lot of attention, uh, care, obviously, which means a lot of fuel, a lot of water, a lot of food, a lot of all of that. And the IDF chose to cut that off. Now, they are opening a pipe in the south and they're doing this, sure, because they want people from the north to go to the south. But the fact of the matter is, if you are a preemie baby in northern Gaza, you're not exactly going to have your parents take you out of the incubator and go to the south. So if we're at that stage right now, and the only thing that we're seeing is the Actual military power because the power differential does matter, say that we're just going to do more and more and more, and then some more after that. I worry about what's next. Because and we then maybe we can get into it depending on timings, you guys can tell me. But Hezbollah hasn't really entered the game yet. It's not really there yet. It's doing it a bit, but I'm I'm generally scared. And this is as a Lebanese who is partly in exile because of Hezbollah. I'm genuinely scared that we are at a stage right now where a lot of major players in the West, especially, and even in Israel for that matter, don't actually understand that this group is not like the other groups. It's not just because they call themselves vaguely Islamists and whatnot. That means that they're the same group of people. Hezbollah has a different capacity. They are battle-hardened after Syria. And I've always opposed the intervention in Syria. They have people genuinely willing to die. Like, more so than with Hamas, for that matter, which were, have always been quote unquote more pragmatic on many ways because they've had to deal with the reality of the Israeli occupation. Hezbollah doesn't. Not since 2000. It's 23 years ago. An entire new generation of, of Hezbollah fighters, because the vast majority of them obviously are very young, are battle hardened, have gone to Syria since the age of 16 and whatnot, are pretty good at what they do, which is horrible things. And they have access, unlike in Gaza, they have access to, in theory, unlimited amount of weapons, because Gaza, they have to smuggle things in tunnels and whatnot, because neither the Egyptians nor the Israelis want to allow them to have the weapons, and yet they still manage. Hezbollah doesn't have that. They just have this, most of Lebanon's border is with Syria. Syria allows, of course, transport of anything via Iraq from Iran. And sure, Israel can bomb a lot of them and will bomb a lot of them, I'm sure. But there's only so much you can do given that they are already in Lebanon. There's fifty thousand of them at the very least that are very well well trained. And if nothing is done right now to actually reduce the temperature, to actually find some kind of compromise that could be at least on this understanding of the Palestinian position, which has not really changed in such so a long time, I, i'm I'm worried about what's next. i'm I'm generally worried for not just for Lebanese civilians and and Palestinian civilians and Syrian civilians, obviously lebanese Palestinian especially given the context of what we're talking about. But I would be really worried for Israeli civilians as well. Like, as Hezbollah are, I have to keep on emphasizing this. They, Hamas is nothing in comparison to them. Like, there's no comparison. They are, they, they operate like an army. They are stronger than the Lebanese army. They're stronger than the Syrian army, for that matter, and the Iraqi army and many other armies in the region. They have different capacities. They have different ideological certainties within them, within their ranks of what it is that they are doing. And if the only thing that Israel is sort of providing them and Israel's allies, especially is that, yeah, actually you want to, you want to play, we'll play and then they will play. They will do it. They are happy to do it. Uh, it scares me. I spent a lot of my time studying Hezbollah and when I was still a journalist at the time interviewing Hezbollah members and whatnot, some of them are sober and pragmatic and sure. Yes, of course, but a good chunk of them are not and enough of them are not. That they can really start something. They were protesting a few days ago, basically saying to Nasrallah, where are you? What are you doing? Like, why aren't you defending our brothers and sisters in Gaza? If this isn't stopped and if then the supposed ground invasion, which hasn't has happened, but not really happened yet and whatnot, if it does actually happen and the destruction continues to even grow and grow and grow, I'm, I'm worried about just this getting even more out of hand than it, it's currently, it's it currently is. And so that's my like pitch to, I don't know if your audience, mostly Americans, I'm assuming that's like my pitch to Americans. If you want, uh, this shit can get worse. It can really get worse and I don't want it to get worse. (laughs) So that's, that's my, that's my fear and part of why I, I, um, I wanted to come on this podcast other than your amazing tolerance and patience at me just rambling for hours and hours, but thank
0: you for that. (laughs) Yeah. We're known for that. Um, yeah, it's true. Everything that you said about the, the fear of the widening war uh throw in just a couple other things just for fun uh that you just didn't expressly mention one is that the u.s seems to really be throwing itself into this in a way that um it didn't 2006 or uh you know in other uh conflicts uh, in the middle east for i mean there are two aircraft carrier groups and uh Thousands of soldiers that have been, you know, mobilized and ready to go in a twenty-four hour notice, and Iran has also said some really scary stuff about you know their willingness to help out their friends, and if Hezbollah does attack, you know, what does the U.S. do? What does and then if? Or what does Iran do? And who knows who acts first? It just, you know, the fact is that if one acts, the other will, right?
2: Yeah, I, I don't think it will be Iran because they, they tend not to do it themselves. They tend to prefer their allies to do it. And so I do think the main front, if you want to use those military terms right now, is basically Hezbollah. And that's the um, if the a good chunk of the base of Hezbollah is genuine in what they say. Again, you may not like it, it That's but they're genuine. They say that what's happening in Gaza is enough of a reason for them to intervene and to open a second front like they're genuinely saying that and they past past animities between like them and hamas because they were on the side of bashar al assad and hamas was not that's kind of like it's like water under the bridge right now like these change these things change all the time and so quickly and so they are willing they are generally willing to martyr themselves as they would say like Stashid. Uh, um to fight for what they would say, uh, in Mukawameh, the resistance or the liberation of Palestine or to fight the Zionist enemy or whatever, whatever interpretation or however they were going to frame it. Um, I'm the carriers in the Mediterranean. Yes. I mean, that's, that's also very terrifying. And they would intervene and all of that. But as I said, like the IDF right now, I should say, I was listening to this popular front episode, uh, just yesterday, um, interviewing a, I don't know if he's Israeli, but he's based in Israel, uh, journalist. Um, who was himself citing, and then I looked up the, 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 the quote he mentioned, which was accurate. He wasn't, he wasn't mistaken. Um, that like two months or so before, prior to the, 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 the breach, basically Hamas's attack on, on that date. Um, there was an internal audit of the IDF by this veteran of the IDF, and people can check out that episode because he mentions the name of that veteran. Um, who said that like uh, the internal audit concluded that actually Israel's army is very weak. And that they are uh, many, you know, tanks are rusty and some, they don't have night goggles in certain places and whatnot. And he himself said that, and this is a quote, that there is going to be a massacre. This was two months ago. And if like a veteran of the IDF can say that, apparently he's quite old. He was described as being the IDF for like five decades. So I'm assuming he's on the older side of things. Um, if he can conclude that, I have to assume that the Americans with their supposedly superior intelligence who were able to predict that the Russians were going to invade Ukraine, and they were right about that, who supposedly them and the Egyptians were telling the Israelis that something might happen. We don't know what, but something might happen. Clearly, they were right about that. I have to conclude, and maybe I'm being optimistic here, that they understand that, yes, they can put plane carriers and whatnot in the Mediterranean, but if Hamas was able to cause this much damage to the IDF in Gaza, Hezbollah can do so much more from Lebanon. Even, even if like the end goal is that Hezbollah gets destroyed after six months or two years or three years or four years of war, the cost will be on like a different scale than anything we've seen so far. And this will have wider implications on pretty much everything. And war, like the example of the Lebanese civil war, has a tendency of then creating a language of its own. The initial spark that started the Lebanese civil war a fight between Maronite militias and Palestinian militias that by, by the eighties and late eighties, those two groups were not nowhere to be found, but they were just two among 50 different actors. And in the state of the world that we're currently in, with things being already so precarious and so fragile and so part, so such huge swaths of the Middle East, especially in North, North Africa, I'm worried that either they're really not taking this into consideration. Or if they are, they're willing to say fuck it and they're willing to get into it. But the consequences, I'm, I just need shudder to even think about them, to be honest with you. So I hope we don't get there. I, as I said, I'm not a fan of Hezbollah. I want them weakened. I want them gone. But they're there and they need to be contended with and they need to be reckoned with in, in the sense of like they need to be dealt with as serious political actors that can do X, Y, and Z if they tell you that they're going to do X, Y, and Z. And I, would want people who supposedly care about civilians and lives and peace and whatever to take that seriously because they say that they're going to do something. They tend to do it and they have the capacity to do it. Anyway, so I repeated myself a bit. Sorry about that.
0: No, 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 no. uh, Matthew, unless you have something else, I just want to say that that is the perfectly scary note that we like to go out on we're either depressed or scared. <laughs> sorry about that <laughs> no it's, it's us uh not you um but yeah but it is, and it uh, is a frightening situation
1: terrifying. And, I don't, and i don't know beyond the immediate politics of israel-palestine i don't know if enough people are watching um everything else that's going on and how frightening it really is uh i, I really was able to um to turn my brain off a little bit this weekend and step outside of it because I'd gotten pretty frightened thinking about how big this could really get uh, if, as you say, Joey, somebody doesn't turn down the temperature and real soon. Yeah. Um, and I'm afraid that it doesn't look like that temperature is going to get turned down. Yeah. Yeah,
2: that's my fear as well. And I see I have obviously more friends in Beirut than I do in Israel-Palestine just because I grew up there but I see a lot of my friends right now in Beirut um, have like a mix of feelings, let's say of helplessness, obviously. And some of them of like deep nihilism, like it's like, fuck it. Like just, if it's going to happen, happen. Like stop. Like there's this expression badly translated here. It was like, if you're going to do it, just do it. Like stop making us wait that you're going to do it. If we're going to die tomorrow, like do it now. And it's that kind of like, again, it's, it's a type of, Trauma-induced nihilism, you might call it, whatever. But that's the civilian population. That's not the Hezbollah population that have been fed basically a very distinctive story and timeline and narrative, if you want, for roughly the past couple of decades. They believe that they won in 2006. They believe that this was their victory in the same way that the Israelis believe that they won in 2006. They kind of both lost, to be honest. But they believe that. And after the, uh, the Arab Spring happened and they had to justify to their base that actually we, need, we the group that loves to talk about the oppressed and fighting oppressors and whatnot, we need to go to Syria to fight the oppressed on behalf of the oppressors, on, be, on behalf of Bashar al-Assad and Iran. And they had to do a lot of, I'm going to call it brainwashing, for lack of a better term, in order to justify that. And I think the result of that, because of the horrors that Hezbollah soldiers committed in Syria You now have a different generation, one that's actually harder in the sense of like battle hardened, hardened than the one in 2006. Does that mean that they will go on rampages and kill civilians? I don't know. I don't, I don't, I'm not confident in saying no, they won't. (laughs) So like, I'm, it's like, I'm not confident enough to say that that's completely out of, out of the, the realm of possibility. They tend to be more careful, but I thought the same about Hamas two weeks ago. That they tend to be more careful. And even if, let's say the theory is that, uh, actually it was like rogue elements within the Hamas upper echelon or whatever that basically gave orders to like terrify them, terrorize them, kill everyone, all of that. Or if those people who actually did the massacres decided to, to make that decision themselves, just scaled that up to a Hezbollah. Right. Like maybe the upper echelons are like, actually, we need to be sober. We need to be careful. We need to do this and that and this and that. But I mean, you know, many of them will accept orders and listen to orders, but not all, you know, some of them will go their own ways and feel like they are justified in doing so. And there will be enough people that believe so. So yeah, turn down the temperature. This is not good. It's not, and it's not going in a good place. Um, it would be my pitch to, uh, I'm sure the American and EU presidents and rulers that are listening
1: to my words right now, <laughs> Joey. Thank you so much for coming on to Angry Planet and uh, scaring the shit out of us once again. No, <laughs> Sorry, I mean it's
0: it's the <laughs> it's the situation. It is. It is. It is a situation. It is. It really is. Unfortunately, I wish it was not. Uh, I, Joey Ayub, I don't think we even said your last name, but we. Joey sure. Ayub, Yes, that's my last he, name.
1: He introduced himself. <laughs> It was quite lovely. I think so. eh, he said Joe. <laughs> anyway,
0: just want to be sure. Just want to be sure. Okay. Thank you very much, really.
2: Thank you both. Thank you both. Um, yeah. Speak soon, hopefully, in better circumstances.
0: Yeah. And, and really, all the best uh, for your new child.
1: That's all for this week, Angry Planet listeners. As always, Angry Planet is me, Matthew Galt, Jason Fields, and Kevin O'Dell. Uh, It's been a pretty wild two weeks. Uh, As I said, kind of at the top of the show, this is the third episode uh, that I've recorded in as many days. Uh, This is the first one that's going out. Um, The other two are uh, some pretty different perspectives on everything that's going on, and it will be obviously covering this whole story quite a bit going forward. If you like us, if you really like us argueplanet.substack.com $9 a month uh, really helps us out I think things will be coming out at a pretty brisk clip here for uh, the next few weeks just because of everything that's going on it's uh, top of everyone's mind uh, we'll talk to you again very, very soon uh We'll be back in a few days with another conversation about conflict on an angry planet. Stay safe until then.
0: Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to Amazon.com slash news ad free.